Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Alex Hoyer. It's no secret that St. Louis and many urban areas are segregated. Segregation impacts health, education, transportation, and more. Molly Metzger and Hank Weber are the editors of a new book, Facing Segregation, Housing Policy Solutions for a Stronger Society. Molly Metzger is an assistant professor in the Brown School at Washington University, and Hank Weber is executive vice chancellor and chief administrative officer at WashU. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And also here with me is Will Jordan, executive director of the Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing and Opportunity Council, also known as EHOC. The organization is involved in putting together a fair housing conference that's happening this Friday. Welcome to you, Will Jordan. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Molly, I want to start with you. Can you give a broad overview of how we've gotten to this point of being so segregated? Sure. So there's sort of a, a fallacy out there that we got here because of personal preferences, that um, families, households don't want to live near people who live like them. And that's really only a, a very, very partial truth. In reality, it's been a series of public policy decisions from the federal level on down to the local level. So policies like redlining, where the federal government underwrote, you know, supported mortgages for white families in the suburbs mostly, um, and, and didn't allow those same mortgages for black families, even, you know, middle class, professional uh, black households. So policies like that really created the structures that we're still living with today. Why do you think there is a fallacy that this is a matter of choice? Um, I think that it's, uh, there's sort of this desire on the part of white people to move past this problem to suggest that maybe, you know, we solved the issue in the 1960s with the Fair Housing Act and the Civil Rights Act, and so we don't have to think about it anymore. It's much more comfortable if we can dismiss it and just sort of move on with our lives. And so I think it's important, and we start the book, you know, with work by Richard Rothstein, um, telling us the history of how we got here, and it's a history that, that really can't be ignored. And uh, uh, Hank Weber, what are the effects of segregation? The effects of the segregation are negative for all of us. Um, for those people who do not have access to high-quality neighborhoods, who become socially isolated, the evidence is overwhelming that there are negative effects on their children and on the life course. How well you do in life has a great deal to do with where you live. And to the degree that we force people to live in places of low opportunity, there are negative results. But I think there are broader implications. Second is there's a very important school of research that suggests the least segregated regions do the best economically in the United States. And third, it's a fundamental affront to the values of America. We are one nation. We're one nation in creed. We're one nation in opportunity. We do best when we live together, when we know together, when we hear, have uh, joint problem solving. And segregation makes all of those things very difficult. The point about it affecting our ideals, uh, that segregation does that, can you explain more how segregation affects those who aren't acutely affected by it? It reduces the chances of, of the, it reduces all economic growth for all of us and the ability, and it leads to a kind of polarization and it leads to a kind of negative effects that we all feel. One of the things, I recruit companies in one of my roles to St. Louis as the chair of the Cortex Innovation District. One of the reasons things that I fight, every one of those, are the realities of a very high murder rate in the city. That, that comes from people being isolated and lacking opportunity. 
And uh, Will Jordan with EHOC, can you explain how that organization factors into this discussion? So now what you have is government policy that is recognized its prior hand in what we have today. So I just left uh, a meeting with uh, our heart partners who are meeting with my staff as we speak. Uh, shout out to Kate and Kitty and my staff out there. If you guys are listening, I know you are. And um, I want and, and they're dis- diligently sitting at a table in our office looking at, wow, look at the numbers we have on the testing findings that we have, per- persons with disabilities, racial segregation in St. Louis and how it's persistent. And as a reality, our our organization is dealing with the reality of it and the victims who come to us, uh, sexual harassment, these kind of things that are happening for people with low economic opportunities. This is a reality for them every day. And we're strategizing day to day about how can we best help people who are suffering, people who are trying to just get their kids to end school and deal with things with so many limited resources and especially so many limited places that they can live, which also restricts their school choices, their health, their exposure to environmental hazards. So these are realities for people, and then every day we are dealing with them. And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a dime that we're still spending right now to try to deal with the problems. Among all of the, prog- among all of the problems that you deal with, what are the, the chief problems that people come to you with? Uh, here lately, it's been um, people with children really finding affordable housing and then not being pushed out. Uh, Moms with uh, a newborn baby coming in, and, and they're in a one-bedroom that a husband and wife could live in, no problem, but the landlord tells them, well, when that baby comes, you got to go, and there's nowhere else for them to go, close to a bus line to be able to afford, no school. Is that legal? It's illegal, but it happens so many times, and so that's one of the problems we have. Persons with disabilities who just want to make a modification to uh, the front of the building so they can get in with their wheelchair, and the property owner or even a condo, one who owns a condo, says, well, you can't change the character and nature of this place uh, even though you bought it and even though you need to be able to get a ramp in here to get in and out we're not going to let you so that's against the law and it, it's a shame that we have to spend a dime to try to help them to do something that they want to spend the money on themselves to help themselves because the landowner won't let them do it so things like that it happens quite a bit still even now mm-hmm. molly metzger you mentioned that we had a fair housing act in the 1960s 1968 which outlawed discrimination uh, with with housing. Was that law not enough, or is it enough, and it's just not being followed? So it's an incredibly important law, but it hasn't been fully enforced. So the Fair Housing Act is um, is one of our major tools in, form, in terms of outlawing discrimination in rental housing and mortgage lending, but the letter of the law also included this language of affirmatively furthering fair housing. And what that means is that Place, local places, places like St. Louis, also have an obligation to do things proactively. It's not enough to just react to discrimination when it happens, but we have to look at our existing policies and look at how those are playing into continuing patterns of segregation and change those things. And that's the, the half of the Fair Housing Act that hasn't really been enforced. What are the barriers to that are impeding progress at this point? So I think a lot of it has to do with lack of awareness and political will. You know, um, and again, this sort of idea that what we have is the result of market forces and not government forces. So when you look at things like tax incentives, last time I was on this show, it was here to talk about uh, tax abatement and tax increment financing and these programs that we have to incentivize housing and economic development. 
These are tools that are supposed to be used in so-called blighted areas, so areas that are really in need of investment and where investment wouldn't happen but for those incentives. But it, when you look at where they've been used, it's, they've really been abused and used in areas that aren't uh, in need. And so we need to look at all of those policies that are shaping housing and development um, and make sure that they're operating on the right side of the coin. If we're going to make progress on this, we need to do two things. One is we need to open up high opportunity areas where there's very little integration, primarily because they're overwhelmingly white, and open them up to more disadvantaged populations. That means we need to create units and create opportunity in those areas. That means you can't have acre single family zoning or two acre single family zoning. That means you need to find ways to create units, in the, create places for people to live in those areas. Is that happening anywhere in St. Louis currently? It's happening in small areas, and there are efforts um, of citizens in some of our highest socioeconomic suburbs to begin to create more of those opportunities. The second thing we need to do is to strengthen neighborhoods that are very highly concentrated poverty, to strengthen those neighborhoods so that they too have a broader mix. And one of the things that Molly talked about is using the incentives that we have and some incentives we talk about in the book that need to be created to encourage more diversity and more diversity of population and development in areas of highly concentrated poverty. And I want to talk more about solutions after we come back from the break. But I do want to invite our listeners to uh, get involved in this conversation. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 314-382-TALK. Or you can email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org or send us a tweet at STL on air. Uh, we have a caller right now. Sarah is from, I guess, calling from WashU and wants to get into the conversation. Uh, Sarah, go ahead, please. Yeah. Hi. Um, thank you all for your work on these important issues. Um, my question is, what role can WashU play in disrupting patterns of economic and racial injustice in St. Louis and the larger region? And would implementing a living wage on campus for all workers be one of them? Thank right. you. Okay, thanks for the call, Sarah. Uh, Hank, can, can you take that one? Uh, first, what about a living wage? It seems to me that while one can disagree and have a useful conversation about what that can be, it is certainly true that one's opportunities increase uh, based on one's wages. Uh, we have a minimum wage in the state. WashU has a minimum wage for its employees of twelve sixty-five an hour, and I think you know the question. I think that that do, as those which is far above most of the employers in this region. But that does increase one's choices. There's no doubt about that. And uh, Molly, the role of WashU, obviously the two of you are, are here from WashU, and we've had Jason Purnell on this program uh, from the Brown School several times. Uh, so this is certainly part of WashU's role, but what about the larger role that uh, WashU and other educational institutions play regarding segregation? So I think that, um, you know, WashU um, operates within St. Louis in a number of capacities. So we're researchers. We're teachers, some of us doing community-engaged teaching. Um, and then we're also a development, uh, we're, we're an institution that is a, you know, owns real estate and develops real estate. So I think you have to look at each of those buckets and think about what we could do better in each of those buckets. You know, for me, um, on the teaching and research side, I try to do work that really is in partnership with 
groups like EHOC um, that, you know, where I'm sitting at the table with them, listening to what the needs are and informing my research agenda based on based on what's, you know, the most uh, important to local communities. Um, so I guess that's, that's what I'll say about that. I mean, the thing that I hope we could do more of, and we have recently done, is in the Forest Park Southeast neighborhood, through one of our development arms, we sponsored a mixed income development which is going to be on the order of 50 market rate units and 50 affordable units called Adams Grove. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that that, which is an opportunity that puts affordable housing in a high opportunity neighborhood, is the kind of thing that we could do more of over time. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah. Will. And I agree with that, that Adams Grove is, to the extent that people can see the opportunities, the success, um, the the way that that develops out and the people who are going to be living there and the lives that it affects that that story can be touted throughout the St. Louis region so that as gentrification naturally happens that people understand that what you got to do is you got to plan for people who are living in these neighborhoods to be able to stay you got to plan for it you can't just think it's going to happen naturally you got to make a plan like they've done here at Adams Grove. I'm talking with Molly Metzger and Hank Weber of Washington University, as well as Will Jordan of the Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing and Opportunity Council, also known as EHOC. We'll continue the discussion in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Now back to Molly Metzger and Hank Weber of Washington University and Will Jordan of EHOC. Will, right before the break, you had mentioned uh, trying to make steps to prevent gentrification. And, and that's something that I wanted to get to because we talk about mixed, uh, mixed income, mixed race developments. And sometimes when that happens, uh, it promotes gentrification and it, gentrification can then push people out who have been in the neighborhood for a long time. What are the steps to prevent that? Several things. One, policy makes a difference. Introducing city um, leaders to uh, um, different ordinances that allow for denser um, a, a building in city limits, like the city of St. Louis, and then um, having set-asides. For example, for every time you're going to build 200 units, you got to set aside 25 that are going to be uh, affordable or even um, uh, low-income units. That is something that a city can make a decision to do to prevent uh, gentrification, but they got to do it uh, willfully. It's, it's not something that just happens. Uh, a developer is going to come in and get as much money as he can for the work that they're going to do, right? Developers are not thinking socially. It's every now and then you have a developer like that, but they're about making money, right? So the city is the, has to take the leadership. And then uh, places like uh, WashU can inform them about how this is how operated. You know, academically, they can talk about studies. This has happened in New Mexico, and they did a great job with it. You know, introducing like our conference uh, to places uh, around the country that have thought about this and had had it happen successfully, so that the city planners and the uh, aldermen and whatnot can make decisions that this is good for our city, and what we want want to do is want to keep opportunities for every person here in the city. As you see it, does the leadership exist in this region to make this happen? It does, but it's fragmented. So what happens is you've got one person in the city, you've got a bunch of people at WashU, you've got a lot of people who in their own spheres end up having to be the lone voice versus having a majority of people who think that way within that decision-making body. So that's one of the issues that I think we try to do with our conferences is get more exposure so that people are not in silos, that they've got 
other people that have that voice so they can make a difference. May I speak to this policy sure, solution Molly. as well? So when Will's talking about setting aside a percentage of units for affordable housing, sometimes we talk about that as inclusionary zoning. That's yes. the, the term that's often used. Even though it's not technically zoning, it's still the term is inclusionary zoning. And in a place like St. Louis, maybe the way to do it would be, you know, if we're using incentives, like if we're giving tax breaks to developers to build multi-unit housing, then in those situations, we need to request, or require rather, um, that there's some affordable units in that building. And this is an idea that has been, um, you know, suggested in a number of places. The Forward Through Ferguson report presented this idea in the last mayoral election in the city of St. Louis. This was an idea um, that was put in front of all of the candidates and every single one of them, including Mayor Krusen, endorsed this idea. And so it's sort of the, an idea whose time has now come. Yes. You know, a lot of people are playing, uh, paying lip service to it. Um, and I think now it's really time to look at implementing it both in the city and throughout the region. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There are, there's a wide variety of tools used around the country to help both promote economic development in, Paris, in places that need it and to prevent gentrification in other areas. The challenge for the public sector is to match the tools to the problem. Mm. In the suburbs, it's often developing access. In the city, it's promoting mixed income housing and both promoting new economic development and preserving the ability of long-term residents to stay. One of the other solutions that I read about in the book uh, concerned housing vouchers. Um, who wants to take that? Molly? Sure. So um, this is an area where we've seen a little bit of progress locally, um, but not enough. So one, um, one, pieces, uh, one of the pieces of the solution with housing vouchers is creating fair housing protections for Section 8 renters. So um, essentially the Section 8 program, or also known as the Housing Choice Voucher Program, helps people pay the rent. They still pay 30% of their income toward their rent, and the program makes up the difference. And the term housing choice voucher suggests that they have a greater choice, that they can use this voucher in the private rental market in a place that works for them and their family. But in reality, when you look at what the program will cover and where landlords will take vouchers, it's really limited. So it ends up really resegregating people. So one of the things we can do locally is to create what's called a source of income protection. And that says, you know, not only is discrimination by race and ethnicity um, illegal and religion and national origin, but also you can't discriminate based on how someone's paying the rent. So in other words, that they're using a voucher. It's illegal then for landlords to say no Section 8. And we actually did this in St. Louis, in the city. In 2015, we passed this law. Um, the Board of Aldermen voted unanimously in favor of it. It's wonderful. It definitely was a, a, a victory, but it was a partial victory because we haven't really been enforcing it. So that's the next step, is we need to create a very clear process um, of enforcing this law, and we need to get these laws passed elsewhere in the region. And, and didn't I read about a program in, and maybe this is part of the voucher program, where uh, there are people who are uh, randomly selected, generally low-income people, a, a voucher or some kind of monetary asset that they can take and move into a different community? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are a couple um, previous studies that were randomized. The, so the most famous is the Moving to Opportunity experiment, and it showed uh, really incredible outcomes, especially for young kids. Mm -hmm. um, and so based on those research findings, cities such as St. Louis have started implementing similar programs where basically um, the housing authorities are partnering to provide a small staff that can help um, Section 8 renters who want to move to these so-called opportunity areas, right? Because not everyone does want to move um, you know, um, into West County, Southwest County, Southwest City. 
Um, but for those who are interested, this program basically helps them navigate the search process. It does outreach to landlords to help them understand how the program works and to kind of um, dispel some of the rumors around the program. Um, and so this is pretty new, but um, they just refunded it for another year, so hopefully it will continue. Research, mm -hmm. does, research doesn't answer every question, but research is very, very conclusive that if people who want to choose to move to higher opportunity areas, usually in the suburb, do, it has great benefits for their children. Wouldn't this also be subject, though, to the same critique of education vouchers that, that you are taking possible resources out of the community? I think that um, there's no question that we need a comprehensive solution to segregation, that moving people around will never be the solution. But when you're especially talking about families with children, um, families uh, whose kids are entering school right now, they can't wait for the neighborhood to change or the schools to change. And for those families that, again, those families who want to move, this should not be forced on anyone. But for those families who are interested, they should have that option. Mm -hmm. All of us, or all of us with considerable incomes, have the option in where we want to live in making the decisions that are best for our children. I think social policy should be about creating those options for other pe for people who don't have those choices economically. And something that the book points out is that government created segregation uh, going back historically in America with, with slavery, the removal of Native Americans right. to reservations, and so it needs to be partly a government solution that gets us out of this. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and Will, what other than the resources, uh, like working with WashU, what other kind of resources do you have at your disposal? Because you, you're the people that are really on the ground here. Absolutely. And let me tell you something. The private market has influence in this situation. Sometimes when the government is moving slow, like the banking market. So we've been working on a green lining fund, and it's got a lot of traction in the St. Louis area. They have one in Detroit. And this is really led by, say, like grassroots organizations like EHOC, but also banks. What is green lighting? So green lining is where we... You get lining a, or lighting? Lining, lining. Mm -hmm. So there's red lining is saying, stay out. Mm -hmm. Green lining is saying, come in. So uh, say on Delmar, north of Delmar, you got a house. Uh, it appraises out at $30,000. That's as much as you're going to get. No bank loan is going to give you more than that. Green lining says, we'll give you more than 30000 to fix up this house, and we'll do it with a couple loans, and the bank is going to provide the money through another process, and that way it appraises higher because the money comes first. Usually the appraisal comes higher, then the money comes. But this is a way where the money comes first, and then the uh, appraisal goes up higher. And then that starts to affect the housing appraisal of the next house and the next house, and next thing you know, and Del on Del Mar, you have the appraisals are higher, and that's good for everybody, especially the people who are currently living there, to be able to fix up the house, to be able to sell the house, whatever they need to do. But if the values go higher, nobody's going to argue. The real estate agent he's going to be happy. The city tax is going to be higher. They're going to be happy. Everybody's going to be happy if the value goes up. But banks are bank playing a large role in helping that to happen, and they're being progressive about how they do their commitments to community reinvestment. And so that is happening in St. Louis, and I want to applaud the private market and banks for looking at it the way they do it in Detroit. We, did, about, we did so much in America to use public policy to help build the suburbs. We can take some actions like a, like a green lighting fund to help people in neighborhoods and help individuals prime the market in, neighborhood, in neighborhoods that need some help. Yeah. And that's the job. It's our job. Will, you mentioned some models in New Mexico uh, of where things are going 
well. What other urban areas are doing a particularly good job with integration and dismantling segregation? I think that in um, uh, parts of Ohio, I think maybe Cincinnati, Ohio, and um, some other cities, they've done a good job at looking at ways to prevent complete gentrification by passing these uh, laws where there's affordable housing is built into, a transit-oriented housing is built into the plan. When the developers come in, that's one of the things that they're already working with. So there's, there's cities that have been successful at rebuilding their downtown areas by putting in some, um, some requirements based upon policy to uh, preserve affordable housing. And the Fair Housing Conference that's happening this uh, Friday, can you explain what's, uh, what that's about? So really, you know, we've had some successful housing conferences, and this is no different from those. It's sold out, of course. I'm sorry if you didn't get tickets, but maybe you can come and just kind of get close to the church and listen <laughs> in. But uh, uh, so we're going to be talking about really um, solutions. So we're, we're, we're going to highlight the history but we're going to talk about what does a solution look like in North County? What does it look like in the city? What does it look like in West County? What can these places do in order to make integration and affordable opportunities better for everybody? So we're going to really be looking at solutions. Okay, we have about a minute left, and I want to get uh, a brief comment from each of you on what you're most optimistic about concerning housing and segregation. I'll start with you, Molly. So I'll just speak in terms of the local political environment right now. This source of income area is something that we're, we're seeing movement. Um, and so we need to build on that. In the county, the Affordable Housing Trust Fund Task Force um, is, uh, you know, has rolled out in the last year. They're getting ready to release their report. So there are a number of things that are happening. Um, the, the, the thing is we just need to enforce these things and make them real, mm -hmm. not just talk about them. And Hank? Since the book's come out, I've gotten three phone calls, or honestly two phone calls and an email, from citizens of wealthy suburbs saying, we need to do more to create opportunity to, to take for people to take advantage of our school system and our assets, and I'm willing to work in my local community to do that. Mm -hmm. I think that fact that that's a very positive thing. And will Jordan most optimistic about in 10, 15 seconds? Uh, private market, uh, private developers, private banks um, coming into agreement with the community about things that are good for us without necessarily having to get the government involved. So I think those, those, those agreements between the community and private markets are becoming very important in order for us to make it happen. We're not going to wait on the government. All right. Will Jordan of EHOC and Molly Metzger and Hank Weber of Washington University, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.